This is Nathaniel Cogley. And this is Eric Morrow. Welcome to Cogley and Morrow on Politics, this week edition uh, that follows one last week where we had uh, Mayor Doug Savine on from uh, the Mayor of Stephenville. And uh, we have had a lot of uh, feedback and response from that from people who uh, heard that show. It was a great uh, interview. It it was. It was. It was a great interview. And it's also... Uh, we had a, a big announcement on the part of the city of Stephenville this week that uh, we had a little bit of a scoop on. We didn't have an right, exact name or anything. Name. Now we know uh, it's Hobby Lobby. Uh, right, yeah. it's Hobby Lobby. So, uh, but but in terms of the interview, it, it was a, a great opportunity to have a local elected official uh, on the show to talk about some of the challenges and issues related to city government. And today, before we end the show, we're going to get back to that uh, with talking about uh, some of the issues that are on the agenda at the federal level. Uh, both in terms of the federal government, but then also the U.S. Conference of Mayors is meeting this week in Washington, D.C., and and, and they have uh, addressed a number of issues of concern. And, and I think it's always good to keep those kinds of issues, whether you're in a city, big or small, uh, just in understanding what's going on and some of the challenges that our local officials face. But before we get to that, uh, we have this uh, impeachment trial that has oh, been oh, is ongoing. That going on? yes, is that yes. going on? It's been going on, and I'm sure some of our listeners have wondered if we were going to get back to that <laughs> at some point. Maybe not. Maybe they're saturated <laughs> with what's been on uh uh, what's been on news uh, uh, on a regular basis or just uh, watching uh, at least 12 hours of uh, yeah. C-SPAN coverage during the day. Well, we air on Sunday, and, of course, the impeachment, uh, the Senate takes Sunday off. So you got your fill of actual watching the testimony, and now you get the analysis right, on, on your day good. off. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, we're going to pack in a lot of analysis. We just want to remind you that uh, we'll put related links to articles on our Facebook page, uh, Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Uh, and then also uh, this uh, uh, episode, episodes are always available uh, after they air at noon on Sunday on KTRL FM 90.5 that you can download them as a podcast. Uh, you can access them on SoundCloud. And we are actually gathering quite a number of past episodes. And so if you're really into this uh, and you haven't caught up, I think we're on our 18th show. So you have plenty of opportunity to go back, plenty of options to look at timely discussion of a number of events. Uh, So we welcome you with us today. We're going to get started off here looking at what's going on. Uh, My uh, co-host Nathaniel Cogley here has uh, been doing the rounds on radio uh, around the country uh, this week uh, on this issue. And uh, I've dipped in. I mean, it's it's very hard. I mean, we, we have jobs and we have families <laughs> and uh, we have errands to run and chores to do. So just like everybody else trying to uh, to get in on, on what's going on with impeachment and watch hours and hours <laughs> of uh, presentation is uh, very, very challenging. Uh, but I dipped in some this week to try to get a sense of this. One is it's, it's very historic. I mean, we're seeing something happen that uh, we, we don't see happen very often and, and we haven't hasn't happened in the history of our country. Uh, it's also and a lot of people have been looking back and reflecting on that is how does this connect to the Clinton impeachment uh, uh, and then and further back uh, to uh, Johnson? I mean, what uh, what how does this uh, relate to that? But then on the other hand, and I think uh, this is where, you know, I'll go with some of this in a moment. Um I think a lot of this is looking ahead. Uh, We're in an election cycle, a general election cycle. There are tremendous political implications for a very political process, as we've said all along. Uh, We see a lot of blurring of the lines between uh, this is a trial and how does a trial function and how is it structured, evidence and crimes and all of this discussion that that I think try to connect with what with what people's perceptions are about a process like this. Uh, But then sometimes what gets left out is really looking at, okay, what, what are the politics of it? Uh, in, your, in the interviews and, and the, the topics that you've discussed this week, Nathaniel, what are, what are some of the, um, the points of interest? Where, where have people been going and zeroing in on what has happened this past week uh, in Washington? I think some of the historical points of interest that you were highlighting there is we've never had an impeachment with a divided Congress before. So both in the Johnson case and in the Clinton case, uh, the same party controlled both chambers. And we saw that very interesting politics about delaying sending the articles over. Uh, and because this is the first time we've had the two parties with controlling two different chambers, that politics is very interesting. We've also never had uh, an impeachment where the president and the Senate were the same party. 
And so we've also kind of been thinking, how's the Senate going to handle this? Um, according to the, the senators of the president's party, the vast majority think of this is a very weak charges. This is inappropriate to even be here. But yet the expectation is that they're going to hold the trial. So one of the more interesting things here is the Republicans have control of the chamber. They have 53 Republican senators. There had been talk for a while to just dismiss this outright, to not even go through this process. And yet here we are going through the process. Now, might, why might that be? Uh, 53 Republican senators. There's enough Republicans from moderate swing states here where it's just not good politics for them to dismiss this right out the gate, even if they maybe genuinely believe that there's not much here. But um, for Susan Collins in Maine, for Cory Gardner in Colorado, for for Martha McSally in Arizona, uh, it's good politics for them to be patient and say, I didn't dismiss right out. I let the House managers make their case. The president's counsels make their case, potentially a witness or two. And after taking in the totality of the facts and being objective, then I voted not guilty. And so while I don't think there's anywhere, I don't even think there's a Republican here that's going to vote guilty. There are some moderate Republicans and some others who have ad adversarial relationships with Trump, like Senator Romney or Senator Murkowski, where it's good for them and their brand and the politics of their swing state to be patient and go through this process. So in terms of the uh, the strategy for the Democrats and how they've been presenting it, I mean, that's one thing to, to, to have you comment on as well. Uh, but how does that strategy then connect with this awareness that this benefits politically those Republican senators who would say, okay, we just, we need, we want this process to go forward, but we want to be able to have that, that flexibility to say, hey, look, we listened, uh, we, we, we let both sides present. Uh, do you think that that's factoring into their strategy or just, the, or they're just looking at the numbers and saying, well, you know, that's for their political fortunes or however, we, we want to see this result in a removal from office? Well, yeah, you can imagine these, uh, the members pursuing this, you know, they'd like to go all out. They want the full trial, all these witnesses, and then a guilty verdict and conviction and removal and barring from office. So these moderate uh, Republicans from swing states, they've given them that much. We're, we'll go through this process. But then the key question comes up on, are there going to be additional witnesses? Who are, that, who are they going to be? Um, and that's been in some of the, the early presentation, this kind of call from some of the House managers to have, you know, people like John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney testify. One thing that's very interesting in these two teams is the House managers are active politicians. They are representatives from districts, whereas Trump has a professional team designed to win the case. And I'm not belittling the House managers' um, skill set or experiences. Uh, six out of the seven have law degrees. They're more accomplished politicians and me, they've won districts, but their primary audience is their home district, you know, and that comes out in some of their approach here. So we have a clip here from Jerry Nadler. He's chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, and he said this on his first day of presentation. Taylor? No, the president does not want you to hear from Ambassador Bolton because the president does not want the American people to hear firsthand testimony about the misconduct at the heart of this trial. The question is whether the Senate will be complicit in the president's crimes by covering them up. Any senator who votes against Ambassador Bolton's testimony or any relevant testimony shows that he or she wants to be part of the cover-up. What other possible reason is there to prohibit a relevant witness from testifying here? Unfortunately, so far, I've seen every Republican senator has shown that they want to be part of the cover-up by voting against every document and witness proposed. I mean, wow, Eric, who's the audience, right? I mean, if this was actually designed to convict and remove President Trump from office, they need to build a bipartisan coalition. And we saw in the House process they weren't doing that. And lo and behold, they come to the Senate and Jerry Nadler basically is looking at the Republican senators who in theory you would need their votes if you're going to convict and remove and saying you all are complicit in the cover-up. This is not the type of messaging designed to win the case, but it is the type of messaging to send to your uh, Democratic home district. Right. It's very, very partisan messaging uh, that goes back to just here a few weeks ago uh, after the uh, Iranian attack on the, on the 
the base uh, in Iraq where you had people accusing others of sympathizing with a terrorist. You know, it, it's that it's that very uh, strong and deliberate political rhetoric that's meant to uh, uh, direct public opinion uh, in a certain way. And I, and I think that was I mean, that was there from the beginning. I, looking back today at the opening remarks made by uh, Adam Schiff and and. It, it, it was very much directed at that point of saying, uh, here's this moment in history. You, ha- you have to act. You have to uh, fulfill your oath to the Constitution. You ha- I mean, it was put in such terms of the, 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 the founders are watching. You know, it was, it was like you, you, you have to realize the gravity of this moment. Um, and in, in, the, in the middle of all of that, you know, when he came back to speak the second time is when he said, well, if this isn't impeachable, what is? And and I listened intently along the way to all of that. And then we got to that point, I'm going, okay, you, you may not be, <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, let's hold on here a minute. Uh, because I could think of a lot of things uh, that would be much worse sure. in terms of, 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 of high crimes and misdemeanors, if you want to put it in that language, that a president could do. Absolutely. Uh, and, and then this is what makes me gravitate to the, the political focus of this it's very much on the election cycle uh, is that when you go back and you look at all of this yes uh, there may be agreement in some areas the president made a mistake uh, he shouldn't have done this he shouldn't have had that phone call in the way it was uh, even some Republicans that are saying okay well he, you know he messed up I wouldn't do that if I was president that wouldn't be something that I would mm-hmm. I would do and then try to instead of owning it which he could have you know he, some some have recommended that if he did just owned it and said well look there i was trying to protect american resources i didn't know about this uh uh, uh, uh the, the authority of congress in terms of appropriations i was just trying to be sure that american uh, resources and, and national interests were protected but he didn't do that and so we're at this point here where uh it does become very very a partisan and 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 that has just continued on into these proceedings i think that's part of it in in our listeners that of, of, of parsing this you know i'm not it's not about uh picking a side and then being so negative toward the other side to say well i don't even want to listen to them it's really understanding what's going on in this process and how and what are the political elements of it and how that's being played out through that process yeah and i think uh, narratives we're used to politicians giving us a narrative when they're just speaking or they're giving a political speech but to see the narratives not factual based uh you know case but a narrative spill over into the actual argumentation on the floor of the Senate, you know, even Nadler referred to the Impoundment Control Act of 1974 as the Anti-Impoundment Act of 1974. I mean, it's just not called that. It's called Impoundment Control, not Anti-Impoundment. And he's saying there can't possibly be anything more impeachable than this. And I'm sure you have a, a dozen hypotheticals in your head that you go much right. more yes. serious than yes. than, than this mean, situation. I mean, uh, Hollywood's come out with a number of movies <laughs> yeah, right. that would give us a lot more serious things <laughs> yeah. to consider for impeachment than. And I see a lot of this messaging to the home district, why that's not convincing this kind of, you know, spun narrative is not convincing to winning over Republican senators that actually have votes. It plays to the home district, to the partisan home district. And I see a lot of the House managers, what I see is they're scripting their narrative for when they lose this trial. So Nadler is saying right now, if you don't call John Bolton as a witness, all of you Republican senators are complicit in the cover-up. You're going to hear that throughout the election year, long after this trial has been lost by the House managers. And then when Adam Schiff was presenting yesterday, I heard this quote that's not much talked about in the media, but it caught my attention. Tomorrow, we will conclude the presentation of the facts and law on Article 1, and we will begin and complete the same on Article 2, the President's unconstitutional obstruction of Congress. The President's counsel will then have three days to make their presentations, and then you will have 16 hours to ask questions, and then the trial will begin. And then you will actually get to hear from the witnesses yourself, and then you'll get to see the documents yourself, or so we hope, and so do the American people. And after their testimony, and after we've had closing arguments, then it will be in your hands. Okay, Eric, so Adam Schiff says, after the House presents its case, after the President's counsel presents their case, 
after we get two days of the senators asking questions, which has got to be in written form, then the trial will begin and you'll get the witnesses. When I hear this, I basically hear him saying, if there's no witnesses, there's no trial. His logic defies what's been going on for the last few days. The trial began a few days ago, and he's saying the trial doesn't begin until the witnesses start being called. What do you think when you hear this? Well, I think it's the it's moving this into the court of public opinion. That that's where the trial is, and it's after. (laughs) And and like like you said, they're they're setting they're setting it up uh, for the messaging that will follow this. And so so the 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 trial is not so much. I mean, he's trying to paint everyone into a corner to say okay well they didn't allow a trial to proceed yeah that wasn't a real trial right that that wasn't we were just presenting uh the rationale that of why we needed one and now we need to move to what the public would consider to trial because the while we understand in terms of this impeachment process that that this is the actual trial you've got the chief justice there you have the arguments being presented you've got very strict rules of order uh uh, to the public uh, it looks like a an average day on the senate floor i mean in that you've got people speaking uh you know if you're there and an average day is actually a lot of people milling around at times there's sometimes there's order but people are moving in and out this is very 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 confining and and everyone has to be very focused uh but it 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 is trying to put it in terms that the general public will understand that oh a a trial with witnesses and then you render a verdict is he guilty or not uh again this is not about guilt or not guilt it's not about really is there a crime or not a crime it's about being fit for office or removing uh someone from office again where I see this uh, in going back to that that statement he made about if this is not impeachable, what is that this is an accumulation. And we've talked about this in previous shows of all of the issues that Democrats have had with Trump. I mean, it's, it's being poured into this moment where they're they're taking all of the policy disagreements they're taking his demeanor they're taking the way he's conducted himself in the office uh which you know we we've talked about some of this we agree and disagree on many things about that and and again i'm not trying to lay a defense for anybody i'm just trying to explain the politics that's what makes the show happening yeah yeah. well yeah and in this and and there's a lot of there's a lot of that i could say i agree with in terms of i think what are the qualifications for someone to be in the office and to be an effective executive in terms of policy and uh, focusing in on on critical issues and and then working uh, the the system of governance we have to get the outcomes that you want mm-hmm. uh, and, and so all of that is being focused into this moment knowing that it, it's almost like putting it through uh, a, a strainer or even a funnel to then come out the other side with everything full force focused on the outcomes of that 2020 election yeah and I think uh, this we got here the media, much of the media, has been out to get Trump and hurt Trump in the upcoming election. But they pushed the Democratic Party so far into pro-impeachment, where 85, 86% of Democrats want impeachment, that members from very Democratic districts have to go forward. And Nancy Pelosi's one of those, and she's the Speaker of the House. And she said, we got to go forward. She's from San Francisco, my hometown. It's a very Democratic district. And we look at this committee, besides Pelosi being from a very Democratic district, Adam Schiff represents Burbank in L.A. Uh, I think Jay Leno's show is down there, okay. right? That's a 50-point, that's a district Hillary Clinton won by 50 points. You know, I mean, it, to really be aggressively after Trump is good politics in his district. Jerry Nadler from Manhattan, and Trump's also from Manhattan, but Hillary won it by 59 points. Huge, massive district. Zoe Lofgren, she's from San Jose, California, uh, where I was born and lived till I was three years old, actually. 52-point Clinton district. Um, Hakeem Jeffries from Brooklyn, New York, a 71-point Hillary Clinton district. You know, um, Val Demings from Orlando, Florida, 27-point Hillary Clinton district. Sylvia Garcia from the Houston area, 50-point Clinton. They are from districts where this is good for them. This, this, it's gonna lose. They're gonna lose the case. They, they don't have a strong case to to impeach, convict, remove this president. But it's good politics in their district to go forward and to fight this fight. Right. Yeah. And I, and I agree that the case is not strong. I think the critical thing is they don't have the votes right. uh, because uh, I go well, back to this being because the case isn't strong. Uh, right. Right. Well, and I, and I even see, well, like you said before, Romney and 
and uh, Corey Gardner, Susan Collins, who's also, you know, she's numbers are showing that she's in, in trouble it's a close, already. A or, yeah, a it's going to be race, a very, yeah. very competitive race. Uh, but they're, they're, they are very much focused on how this plays out. And you, and you have to think that every, every member of Congress almost, I mean, it's, it's, if they're not looking at it in terms of their own district, they're looking at it in terms of the national implications and how the leadership will stack up post November. Uh, 2020. You know, when a new Congress comes in session next year, a new pre- uh, a new or reelected president in the White House, how is this all going to? Uh, uh, how is all this going to set up uh, coming out of this process and then moving into a very in- intense primary season, uh, which mm-hmm. is about to start a w- uh, about a week from now? Uh, that uh, uh, that has tremendous implica- I mean, tremendous implications for where we go in the next four to six years. Yeah, absolutely. And as we look at this trial unfold, uh, that real key moment is going to come after the senators ask their questions, which probably will be entertaining. You know, right. <laughs> well, what yes, questions right. are they going to ask? You know, right. uh, but then they'll be able to have a vote on dismissal or not, and then we'll get that question of witnesses. Um, and I have a theory, Eric, that that not all the radio hosts who interviewed me bought bid on and I could be wrong but right there out right now in the media we tend to have two possibilities uh, how this plays out one is that there'll be no witnesses that will just get to that point and the Republicans will have 51 votes to say they've seen enough nothing impeachable here nothing to convict and remove a president on and the other scenario that seems to be in the media is these big dramatic witnesses coming in and reciprocity. So you get the Bolton and you get Hunter Biden and it's going to be this big, dramatic, game-changing witnesses. I don't think either of those scenarios is going to play out. The key here and why we're even going through this stage of the process at all is these Republicans from swing states where it's good to be patient, objective, hear out the case before voting not guilty, which I think is in their heart to do. And for these people, it's going to be good to call a witness or two. They're just not going to call the witnesses the Democrats want. They're not going to caucus right. with the 47 Democrats. They're going to come out, have to come up with a witness that's acceptable to all Republicans. And there's two real lines of questioning here that's been going on. Did the president do what is alleged? And that leads you into people like, you know, John Bolton. Did they go over there, do a quid pro quo and, and link the money to the investigations? That's one line of questioning. The other line of questioning is, is what is alleged even an actual crime? There's disagreement about that. And one thing that the House never considered because it came out on the day the trial began was this Government Accountability Office report that somehow spun deferring the funds within the fiscal year as a big constitutional, not faithfully executing the laws violation. They made a big thing out of it. And the Office of Management and Budget doesn't agree with that assessment. They believe that they they acted within the law, within the Empowerment Control Act law. And so I could see this play out and I could totally be wrong, but I enjoy predicting. Mm-hmm. And sometimes sure. I'm right, sometimes sure. I'm wrong. I see a couple witnesses, but I see them to be technocrats who address maybe whatever they believe the Democrats' best points were, and then they get someone to address it. So to bring in an OMB witness to counter that GOA report Mm -hmm. that the House never actually dealt with because it wasn't out yet. And so you get a couple witnesses. So that Susan Collins and and Lisa Murkowski and Cordy Gardner can say, we did call witnesses. They, They take away that talking point. You guys didn't even call witnesses. Well, we did call witnesses. Um, and they made it clear that they felt they they followed the law. And then based on the totality of the case and the witnesses that we called, there was no crime that rises to treason, bribery, other high crimes, misdemeanors. And we dismiss. Is this plausible or am I lost here? No, I, I think it's very plausible. I mean, what it's a it's a it's a looking at the scale of this. So just to give uh, an analogy here, as an administrator in a state institution, uh, you have all kinds of policies. Uh, You're aware of some of them. Some of them you're not because they're not applied on a regular basis. And so you... uh, When when I'm not aware, I come to you, right? Right, right, (laughs) that's right, yes. Uh, And then I have to ask further up if I'm not aware either. But but sometimes you, you do things that are, you know, in general, you're keeping with good intent and you're trying to follow a process, but either something's changed you're not aware of, and so you, you're made aware of that. They said, okay, this was a mistake, or this wasn't, correct this, mm-hmm. we can fix it mm-hmm. this time, or we can't, and then move on, and you're aware. And it's kind of like a, a just a, a, a warning, you know, to say, hey, this is the way that you should do this. And a learning moment, yeah. Right. Of course, I'm, we're not talking about 
you know, $400 billion or, you know, in, in terms of uh, foreign aid or whatever. But well, 400 million. Million. million okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. Well, even 400 million. So a little <laughs> less. But so we're not we're not talking about that in terms of magnitude. But when you look on the scale of our federal government, uh, you look at the latitude that a president has in terms of foreign policy under the Constitution. You look at uh, the the amounts that we're talking about, you know, 400 million is is a small amount in comparison and, and I don't in this case I don't think the amount really matters it's is this really an a, an issue or a problem or an offense that says okay you shouldn't do it this way you you, you made a mistake uh, whatever the conversations were whatever the motivation was or intent that's very difficult to prove uh, I think, and I think we've seen the challenges with that. That's what Article One is. Right, it's right. a motive crime, right? You right. Know, there's yeah. no crime, but they're saying he has corrupt motives. You know, it's right. very tough to prove. Just right. like you're yeah. saying, yes, yeah, it's very difficult, and because you have people all over the place, you and, and even this, the the idea that they would bring in Bolton, who probably would not even get to testify if executive privilege was asserted, He'd be is able that, to answer some questions but not others, right? right. Yeah. And 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 but that benefits him because he says, well, look, I was willing. I mean, that sells books and gets you interviews, you know, in that, okay, I was willing to, to go and, you know, answer what questions I could. You know, it was, it, it, it adds to the drama of it. I don't, yeah. in terms of substance, I don't know that it would. I, I don't even I mean, think Bolton has really made much, as much waves as he intended. He was basically, yeah. if, if I'm subpoenaed, I'll testify. Well, I, me too. <laughs> I'm subpoenaed. Right. I mean, yes. it wasn't like he said he had groundbreaking information. Right. The thing about him is he's former. I mean, he he has left the cabinet, right. so people think maybe he'll be willing to, you know, say what's on his mind. But but there's no lead here that he has some really damaging thing to say anyway. Let alone if you get through executive privilege. Right, and, and I think the strategy then coming out of that, with especially when we're looking at the the Democratic candidates and even those running for uh, re-election in Congress. Uh, is is not the one on the basis of uh, this is, was an impeachable offense and he should have been removed from office. Uh, it goes back to the question of competency. Uh, uh, it, to, that can be a, a point of focus. Is this person really capable? Is this one of many, many issues that could be strung together in terms of a narrative that, that says on the other part is, well, I'm running against Donald J. Trump for president, and th- these are the reasons why, and here are example after example of someone who does not know how to do the job. You bring up the uh, Democrats running for president, and of course we still have three Democratic senators in it. They have to be tied down in this trial. Next week we'll be uh, looking forward to the Iowa caucuses. They'd love to be in Iowa, New Hampshire campaigning. So that's Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Senator Amy Klobuchar. They're tied up in this trial. There's some theories out there that uh, maybe this is what Pelosi wanted to tie up these senators because she prefers Biden, who's not tied up by this. I'm not so sure. I think she's more focused on winning her district than damaging some Democratic presidential candidates. But what do you think about the, 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 the fact of keeping these three senators in for the trial when they want to be out campaigning? I, I think it is a disadvantage. I think the one that it hurts the most is Klobuchar because she, yeah, she was moving up. Yeah. And, and, then, and now the chance of her placing high yeah. enough to go she past to Iowa, Iowa right now. She does. Yeah. She definitely does. So, but uh, we, we'll be tracking this again, and and certainly have more to address uh, as we uh, uh, look ahead, both in terms of the primary and in terms of the impeachment process. Before we move off of this issue and take a quick break, uh, Nathaniel has one more thing to add. One more thing to say. I'm just saying this is tough for the senators. They have to sit there all day and night into some long hours. They have to be silent. If you know senators, they like talking. They don't like to sit there silent and be, yeah. They have. They can't have their smartphone with them. These are busy people communicating all the time. They have to sit there silent with no phone to the late hours of the night. And they have to listen to uh, some partisan Democratic House members lecture them with talking points. And they shut up. This is tough for them. And it's not like a criminal trial or a judicial court trial where the jury is a captive. You're assigned jury duty and, and it can take up a chunk of your life and you're not really in control of the timetable. This is a situation where the jury itself can say, I'm tired of this. I don't want to do this anymore. Let's end it. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to watch as the shock of these senators, some of them in their 70s, uh, have to sit there through this. Mm-hmm. No cell phone. Be quiet. Listen to talking points all day. This is going to take a toll on them. Yes, it is. Yes, it, it will take a toll. And uh, uh, and we see it 
just the challenges of sometimes having students sit through class for 50 <laughs> minutes or an hour and 15, much less uh, senators uh, sitting for four hours at a, at a time. But uh, anyway, we will get back to this and uh, be following it so that we can uh, bring you quality analysis on this. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more Cogley and Morrow on politics. Politics can be confusing, but Cogley and Morrow have your back. Follow them on Facebook. Search Cogliamoro on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogliamoro is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network. Welcome back to Cogley and Moro on politics. As mentioned, next week we'll be focusing on the Iowa caucuses. We have one more show before that event takes place. But this week, Eric, you sent me a Washington Post article. We're going to put that up on our Facebook page so our listeners can check it out themselves. And it's entitled The Harmful Popular Misconceptions About Rural America. Uh, I got to read this and the author, Christopher Ingram, makes five points, misconceptions about rural America. And uh, they were interesting and they lead to some good discussions. So number one was that rural is synonymous with Midwestern. And the author brings up the point that there's rural areas in all regions of the country, not just Midwestern assumptions. Eric, any thoughts on yes. that one? Well, and I think this is uh, one that's critical to understand, especially when we're looking at uh, current politics in the country is that uh, a lot of a focus is being given to the weight of uh, urban centers and their vote. Uh, it's give, being given attention in state houses in terms of representation of rural versus urban interest uh, at the at the local level. Uh, so th- this focus on understanding uh, our country as a whole and looking at it and knowing that in its diversity is this the, this diversity that is sometimes misconceived between uh, urban areas and and what people who live in those areas think about rural areas. And I thought this article was very appropriate. Uh, We live here in Erath County, which is uh, considered rural Texas. And as I say, Erath County is the best county on Earth. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, We'll see what uh, response (laughs) we get to that joke. Uh, But uh, anyway, that's uh, uh, Cogley at Tarleton.edu, right? Okay. So, uh, but anyway, um, we live in rural Texas and I thought some of these uh, misconceptions applied, or at least it's a way of letting our listeners know in rural Texas, uh, how this connects and how either our area is different or similar sure. to other areas. And so we're in cattle country. Yes, you know, very much in cattle yeah. country, uh, and ranching. We can go uh, further South. You have more agriculture, uh, further uh, West. You have, uh, 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 cattle and, and hunting is a big uh, industry there as well. Uh, but this first one about uh, rural is synonymous with Midwestern. And, and I can talk from experience from this. I lived in Boston, Massachusetts. I lived in New York City. Yeah. And when I was there, I had the opportunity in both states. I was there long enough uh, to be able to go to some of the rural areas uh, of, of those states. And while um, it did remind you somewhat, especially because of the either the geography or uh, the lack of an accent, it seemed like, especially if you've been in New York or if you live further mm-hmm. south, uh, that there was a, 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 a seem like, well, this is very much Midwestern, you might say. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's very, very different. Uh, for example, New Jersey. Uh, most people think of New Jersey as this industrial state uh, with uh, very dense uh, industry and population. You go into western New Jersey and you find ranches and cowboys sure, sure. and country western music. And uh, I mean, it, it's a very, very different uh, place and culture. And some of that's changing because of population growth. But but I think this first one is very clear that uh, that we have rural areas and those rural areas in and of themselves are diverse from one state to another throughout the country. I think the critical thing of what we're seeing, and we definitely see this in Texas, is that we are have been on this continuum of moving from a rural state to now that about 90% of our population in the state lives in urban areas, uh, which creates a challenge for a state as big as Texas. Uh, a challenge when you have uh, agriculture as one of your major industries in the state mm-hmm. uh, and these urban areas continue to grow. I mean, we're one of the fastest growing uh, areas in some of our cities in the nation. Uh, and so that that 
diversity is something that that can create political challenges uh, that we're seeing, uh, but it's also something I think people need to be aware of uh, when they associate with the broader place in which they live, not just the country itself, but certainly right here in our own state. Yeah, someone who spent uh, part of their childhood in Nevada City, California, population 2000, and also worked at a salmon cannery in Ekuk, Alaska. You know, I already kind of get that there's rural all over the place. It's not just cattle country. But I took another lesson from that, just extending it out. Sometimes when we analyze the map, we think of urban states and rural states. There really are no urban states. You know, even in New York and California and Florida, where we have major big cities, there's a ton of rural areas there, too. Right, right. You could you can say Texas is an urban state. I mean, you look at the percentage of the population, but that would then ignore. And, and part of the reason why it's not ignored is Texas is such a big state geographically in terms of size. And so you think of people think of, oh, New York City, that must be the entire state of New York. Well, it's not. I mean, uh, New York, the majority of New York state is a rural state. Absolutely. Yep. Well, the number two misconception about rural areas in this article is, quote unquote, Rural is synonymous with white. Now, I don't use the word white. I tend to use European-American. I don't like the base colors. I like the continent of ancestry, hyphen continent of citizenship. But rural is is synonymous with white, and that's a misconception. Eric, any thoughts on that? Yes, uh, that does, again, say that, especially even in Texas, when you move more toward our southern counties and many of them rural counties that have a majority Hispanic population, uh, but even right here in Erath County, uh, I looked at the census numbers from 2010 compared to uh, the projections. Uh, currently, about one fifth of the population in Erath County is Hispanic, uh, and that's up two percent uh, projected from the last census. So we don't we we don't know where that'll land with the with the census for this year. Uh, so uh, that shows that that there's a level of diversity there. Uh, and that varies, and it really comes down, this is where we go back to our discussion last week, all politics is local, uh, with the mayor, uh, that it comes down to each individual county. Uh, that's how, how different those rural areas can be in terms of the makeup of the population uh, within the county. Well, I think highlighting this idea of rural minorities is very interesting. Um, and it says 22% of rural population is classified as a quote-unquote minority. In other words, not European-American. Um, but that's interesting because the Republican Party does so well with rural population. But yet the Democratic Party tends to do well with quote-unquote minority demographics. And so there is a, is a group of people, rural minorities. I mean, both parties kind of have a leverage in on to being attractive to that group. And it seems like a group that they really want to compete over. Right. It, it is. And I think it will become more that way, especially in states that could have the potential of moving to be swing states. So we're mm-hmm. in one, mm-hmm. which I think that's very interesting in, yeah. the, in the years ahead to watch how that dynamic changes in rural America. Uh, made the case before, I think we've talked about it on this show, one of the reasons uh, that, that, that the urban areas like Dallas, San Antonio, Houston have not had the impact, though they vote mostly, the, the, there's a higher percentage of Demo- people who vote Democrat, why that has not had the impact, say, like it does in Ohio, sure. when you have Cincinnati and Cleveland, Toledo, that may go Democrat, but the rest of the state's all red. We have all these mid-level cities. So we have mm-hmm. Lubbock and Amarillo mm-hmm. and El Paso. Uh, we, we have these cities that uh, and some of them, Waco is another example where there's uh, they're within a hundred to two hundred thousand in population. Well, you add all those up, and the fact that they vote majority Republican uh, and not Democrat impacts the outcomes of statewide elections. And so in Texas, it's a little more complex in looking yeah. at demographics in that way. Well, you just think in terms of specifically Texas, as the Hispanic population grows, we are a border state. But uh, not all of them are going to settle in urban areas. Some of them will be in smaller areas. And it's something where it's not entirely clear that the the trend to the Democratic Party will continue. Certainly the Republican Party would want to compete. You know, they'd certainly do well with rural populations, regardless of background. They'd want to compete for that. So uh, the third misconception here in this article is uh, rural is synonymous with, quote unquote, conservative. Eric, any thoughts on that one? Well, again, I would just go back to uh, in other parts of the country, especially places where I live, that that is certainly not always the case. I mean, Massachusetts, to me, is a good example. I always heard growing up the comparisons with not Texas and New York, but Texas and Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. 
partly because Massachusetts politics had its level of influence uh, nationally. Texas has been there in that mix as well. And so there was always uh, these uh, comparisons. And when I lived there, uh, it, it was very interesting because you also look at a state where the governorship has moved back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. I mean, Mitt Romney was governor there, mm-hmm. uh, more moderate Republican. Uh, and you look at uh, the politics that go on, which in the urban center and, and other places uh, that are that are heavily populated uh, might be more progressive and, and associate with uh, Democrats. And you go in the rural areas and you might see more Republican representation. When you get to the state level, the types of policies that that come out are, are very different. You wouldn't you wouldn't think that a state that has that much uh, representation from the Republican Party would often be cited for the kind of progressive policies that are put in place uh, at the state level. And so I think that shows that again you have to go down to that that regional uh, state, if not regional level, to really understand the politics, understand the, the, yeah. the makeup and mixture of people and how they see specific issues. It's not just this label of, of conservative or liberal or Republican or Democrat as much as looking at how those issues impact people and then what is the political culture in which they've grown up in and has influenced them to see the role of government the way they do. Yeah, and what we find in some of these states where statewide one party dominates is that the opposing party, whether it's the Democrat or Republican, the minority party in the state, has to change, has to adjust to the state politics. You know, we think of Kentucky as a very Republican state. And then I got called to do some interviews on a Democrat winning the governor's race in Kentucky and as a big deal. And I had to study up on Kentucky politics. It's not really my thing. (laughs) But I came across, and it's not in front of me, but I think this is correct. It's like eight out of the last 12 governor's races, a Democrat won. So it's not like actually this is groundbreaking. Democrats win the governor's race all the time in Kentucky because the Democratic Party of Kentucky is not the National Democratic Party on all its issues. And even in Texas here, the Democratic Party of Texas probably has to adjust from the National Democratic Party on some issues to compete in Texas. Right. You you see that, especially on economic issues that historically, if you look at Democrats in Texas, they've been economic conservatives. Mm -hmm. It's when you started to have that divide with social conservatism that that really began to change. And, And then, of course, national changes in party identification had a tremendous impact on Texas and the South, uh, starting in the 70s and then uh, into the Reagan era. Uh, but but you still, and you would, I think we'll see this, that going forward, if, if the state uh, turns more purple, if, it, if there's possibility of being sure. a swing state, and you're going to find that the rank-and-file Democrat is still, still leans toward being an economic conservative. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the political culture that's here in the state that has had such a long influence and will continue to have it, even though there there will be some uh, uh, more progressive or we'd say very liberal in uh, in terms of their focus on economic issues within the party, but they're not going to be dominant. Well, I'm familiar with that in California. You know, Democrats have had control of the state for a while, but we had a number of Republican governors, Pete Wilson, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but they were all pro-abortion rights. Republicans, not what what wins at the national level in presidential primaries and elections. Uh, Number four misconception about rural Americans here, Eric, is that they, quote unquote, this is not Cogley saying this, this is out of this article. Number four, quote unquote, rural Americans don't care about the news. Eric, what do you think about that misconception? Well, I think there's two parts to this. I think one is that that's not not true. Right. I I think it's very... um, uh, that the people in rural America may be uh, connected more uh, with national news through like network news than they are with state politics or even local. Uh, the challenge really in rural America today is access uh, to, mm-hmm. to news on uh, state and local level that on the issues that impact uh, people the most. I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit with the mayor uh, last week was uh, how people stay informed about what's going on in their community. If you don't subscribe to the newspaper if you don't yeah. look it up on social media uh, so I, I, I think this is a, a certainly this is a stereotype that yeah. that's kind of pushed out that people are are it may kind of go along with oh well they're they're rural they in the past you know thinking oh they're uh, farmers and ranchers, the the maybe less education, not as much engaged in in what's going on in the world. Uh, I just don't see that as the case, and I, I see certainly our role here at an institution like we're at it in Stephenville, and with the students that we work with. You know, it may be 
working and helping people be more engaged and know sure. the kinds of sources they need to go to, I just see the challenge becoming more and more that of access. Yeah, but it seems like access has been changing with technology. I mean, we live in a small town here in Stephenville, a great small town. But hey, we got internet. We got I got a cable subscription. I mean, I'm flooded with information. It's not a question of access, but how can I process everything on my to-do list? But it seems like technology has kind of made this news much more accessible in rural areas. Yes, I, I, I agree. And I think that's where the emphasis needs to be on encouraging people to in, to engage in that way and and not, uh, you know, kind of fall into the ruts of, okay, I only listen to this or only relying on social media, but to know that there are plenty of resources out there in which to stay connected. Yeah. Number five on the uh, misperceptions about rural communities. Number five, quote unquote, rural America is the real America. Eric, thoughts here? Yes. Well, I, I think this one goes goes flies right in the face of recognizing the diversity of our country as a whole. I, I mean, it's the, defining what is real America. Uh, I, I was talking to a student today about my some of my experiences in, in New York City. And and, you know, one of the remarks always is, well, it's like a whole you're in a whole nother country. And well, maybe in, in terms of it being different, but it but it's not you're in America. Uh, and that's just as much a part of the the of our nation and the the what makes up the nation. And it's it's really that level of diversity. And I think the issue here is, and it comes both ways. It's a, on the part of people in rural America to recognize uh, that there are people who have chosen to live in urban America, uh, and that urban Americans to see that that there's value uh, to those people who live in rural America, and there's a value to. Uh, the quality of life or the way of life that people choose to uh, to have uh, in in rural parts of the country. So I think it's one of those challenges of, of, again, recognizing the level of diversity in the world that we live in, especially in our country, but then know it with an understanding of that, then engaging with the policy issues and the, the, the challenges of governance uh, that come with that. Well, I grew up both in San Francisco and Nevada City. San Francisco, very big. Nevada, Nevada City, very small. I think there might be some dynamic here that feeds into this. Certainly, our great American urban centers are part of America, no doubt about it. But growing up in San Francisco and being a cab driver there, we got, quote unquote, Chinatown, mm -hmm. Japantown, the Mission District, where you can go there and all of a sudden the languages on the storefronts are Chinese, Japanese, Spanish. And so our big urban centers on the coast do attract immigrants from other parts of the world. That first wave of immigrants usually keeps some of the customs. Some of them come over as still citizens of the, of the other country. They keep a lot of the customs and languages. And it takes uh, a generation or two before people fully uh, matriculate into American culture and citizenship. Right. Yes. Uh, it, that, that's uh, my experience when I was in New York. I mean, it's just an amazing yeah, diversity and to be able to experience that but again that i think for me that's still part of the history of this country i mean i enjoyed that about that living in that part of the country I chose to come back to texas to be close to family i like the uh, rural way of life where you can uh, run 10 errands in an hour instead of one living on long island i mean that was one of the challenges and but but it, it but it, it was still a unique opportunity to be in that environment and to see that that level of diversity in our country. And I think that's that's an awareness that that all of us really need, no matter where we choose to live. Well, I love going in New York. I can speak Wolof on the street corner with Senegalese. I can see I lived in Senegal for a while, so I'm, I'm familiar with that. So we had one more thing before we go. You also uh, highlighting something I, I wasn't familiar with. So there's the United States Conference of Mayors is the official nonpartisan organization of cities with populations of 30,000 or more. I thought this was very interesting because I think of kind of the city level to the county level to the state level, and then we're in a union of the USA. But here you have this conference where mayors from different states, different counties come together, discuss and coordinate on different issues. I thought this was very interesting right. to read. And this is uh, interesting to help people understand that it's government lobbying government. I mean, this is an advocacy group. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is a conference and it does focus on uh, resources and, and studies of issues, but it's also to direct that into the, the conversations 
at the federal level uh, to look at how federal government is collaborating with local government. And so I think it's critical following our, our interview with the mayor last yeah. week and some of the other issues was just to give this some attention uh, to recognize that 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 with all the diversity that we have in terms of some major issues that are going on in the country right now, uh, there is some unanimity uh, and, and, and what is being asked of the federal government and even in the state houses as well uh, to try to help local officials uh, 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 navigate. And a couple of those issues that had come up for, for me in looking at some of the materials and some of the agenda and the focus, uh, a lot of attention is being given to uh uh, to guns, firearm safety, uh, uh, mental health related issues, especially in the wake of, of the increase in mass shootings. I mean, that's one that, that plays heavily on local law enforcement. Uh, one that's always in the mix at near the top is infrastructure. Uh, talking about transportation, uh, both in terms of uh, mass transit and roads, uh, rail and air. And then uh, the other one that, that that has been very taxing, and this is where cities and counties often collaborate because it sometimes falls into rural areas, is the uh, opioid uh, epidemic around the country where uh, cities have just not had the capacity to be able to try to be proactive in addressing this. So we're um, in the political science uh, discipline, and sometimes there's a political science conference. We come together from from around and talk political science here. Mayors come together outside of their state structure and meet and talk the job of mayor. Mm-hmm. And do you think this type of conference actually yields positive policy benefits? I, I think it does. I think it shows a, lev- a level of, of uh, unanimity, as I had said, where they're all, many of them in, in communities this size or larger, are dealing with some of the same issues, some of the same challenges, and they've got to come together like this uh, in order to have that impact on federal government and the resources are there that they can access. Well, great. This was a, another fun show. Uh, next week, we'll definitely be talking Iowa caucuses. We'll probably have some impeachment updates. Thank you very much for joining us this week on Cogley and Morrow on Politics. We'll see you next week right here on 90.5 KTRL. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.